Uh, I promise you we're in for a real treat uh, this morning. It's, it's my real privilege in a moment to introduce uh, Jean to you. Uh, Jean uh, is someone I'm sure that many of us will know, but if you don't know her, she uh, is someone I, I just genuinely believe, and actually we, we talked a bit about this uh, before this morning's meeting, is just someone who uh, God has just done lots and lots in, in a secret place. Uh, and often you don't sometimes see everything of someone when it's uh, not public. It's always been done in a secret place. And God has done loads of things in and through Jean, through different things that have shaped her life into who she is today. And when you do get time to speak to Jean, you suddenly realize how much treasure God has put in her. And therefore, I, I know we'll be in for a treat this morning because I know what she'll do is she'll therefore just share out of the reality of what she knows about God. And I think, isn't that great to hear about? And so I wonder if we could... Uh, welcome Jean up. This is the first time we're ever preaching at Oasis, so let's welcome her. Thank you and good morning. Yeah, as Adrian said, my name is Jean. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I've been in Birmingham now, slash Solihull, for five-ish years, and Oasis has been my church pretty much the whole time, and it's been a real privilege to be a part of this community and get to know some of you, and I look forward to more of the same. Uh, God originally brought me here to train to be a speech and language therapist, and that is now what I do. I work with adults, adults who've got communication disorders, people recovering from a stroke, things like that, people with swallowing disorders, and people with disorders of the voice as well. So that's what I do Monday to Friday. Now, as a church, we've been in this Book of Ruth since June. Um, and Abby very beautifully gave us a wonderful summary of the story. I think we'll have some slides in a minute, but I'm just going to carry on anyway. <laughs> The book is a book that tells the true account of... <laughs> I'm having a hand signal, bear with... Sorry. There you go. Should be obvious. <laughs> okay. Technical issue. I'll tell you something else while they're sorting the technical issue out. <laughs> um... Just rewind a little bit back to the fact that I'm a speech and language therapist. One of the things that I love about being a speech and language therapist is the fact that the abbreviation is SALT, speech and language therapist. And uh, <laughs> I love that. My colleagues hate it. They hate being called SALT. So we're often just refer to SALT, consult come, are you SALT? And they really dislike it. But I love it because... Uh, Salt appears in the Bible as a picture of who we're meant to be as Christians in the world, that we're meant to flavor the world around us. So I really love that. And I also really think it reflects my profession quite well because I feel like we're quite an underground therapy service, that not many people know who we are or what we do unless they've had contact with us. And salt is that kind of thing that you really don't see. If you were to put salt in water and let it dissolve, you don't know it's there until you drink it, and then you know it's there. <laughs> so there we go. That's a little bit more about me. Okay, we're good to go. So the book of Ruth that Abby so beautifully summarized for us is a story of loss, of loyalty, 
and of redemption. I'm not going to go over the details again because Abby's given us that, but we know that there's grief, there's death, there's loss, leaving three widows. One of those widows chooses loyalty, that's Ruth, who the book is named after, and stays with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And now we come to the part of the book towards the end where we're seeing God's rescue plan for them come to a point of completion in their lives through marriage and the birth of a child. So if you move on a little bit further, and we'll just go to the passage. So we're in chapter 4, the last chapter of the book, coming towards the end. I'll just read it out if you listen in, and the words might appear at some point. So Ruth 4, starting at verse 13 and going to 17. So Boaz married Ruth and took her home to live with him. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. And the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has given you a family redeemer today. May he be famous in Israel. May this child restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you so much and who has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took care of the baby and cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbour women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is an incredible turnaround in the events and the lives of Ruth and Naomi. And I think it really helps us just to revisit the context of that in order to help us grasp the significance of what this marriage and this child meant. Because you might be thinking, that's really nice for her, that's great, she's got married again, great, she's had a baby, that's lovely. But actually in the context of Judah at this point in time, we need to understand that these were two women on their own in very much a man's world, which left them very vulnerable. It was a time of social instability. We know it was written at the time of the judges. The judges were people who were put in place to be like troubleshooters because the nation didn't have a king, didn't have a great social structure, and there was a lot of hostility with all the nations around them. So everything was always up in the air, and the judges were placed there to try and troubleshoot the problems as they came. There were two women alone in a man's world at a time of social instability. Being without a man at that point in time meant they couldn't provide for themselves, they didn't have any protection, and they didn't have any status in society. And being childless meant that they had no one to look after them in old age, no one to carry on the family line, no future. And on top of that, Ruth was also a foreigner, an immigrant, probably eyed with suspicion. In fact, her reaction to 
the kindness of Boaz when he allows her to come into his fields and glean with his harvesters and then sit at the table with them and eat and shows this great kindness to her. Her reaction is, but why would you do this for me? I'm a foreigner. And there was certainly hostility towards the Moabites. That's what Ruth was. She was from Moab. She was a Moabite who had, at one period in time, they'd, been, they'd occupied the Israelites. So there would have certainly been hostility towards her as a foreigner. So maybe on the face of it, it just looks like a nice, happy outcome. It's a lovely rags to riches. It's a lovely romance. But there's really far more to it than that. What we see is a spectacular answer to prayer. Naomi, at the beginning of the book, prays for both her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, who decided to go back to her homeland. She prayed, may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Boaz prayed for Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully. Naomi and Boaz not only prayed for Ruth, but became part of the answer to the prayers for Ruth as well. And we see that their reality was transformed, transformed in four very significant ways through this marriage and through the birth of Obed. Firstly, we see emotional healing. If you remember right back in chapter one, Naomi came back to Bethlehem and when she was greeted by her friends, they were calling her Naomi, which means pleasure. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Yet here, in this final chapter, we see joy. Bitterness to joy. Reality transformed on an emotional level. We also see emptiness, the emptiness of grief and loss turned around into fullness, where the Bible talks about um, this child being able to care for her in old age. It literally means that he will cause your old age to become full. She went from nothing to fullness, bitterness to joy and emptiness to fullness, as the Lord recognized her need for emotional healing and brought it in an amazing way. We see restoration a restoration of status. Ruth went from widow to bride. Naomi, who had become childless, became like a mother or a foster mother to Obed. A dramatic transformation of their reality. We see their practical needs met. God provided a husband and an heir. And thinking back to that context, the significance of that is protection, provision, security, a future, no longer dependent on the generosity of others. And we see their future preserved through the birth of that child, Obed. Obed, which means servant. He could keep providing for the family as they get older and protect the family lineage. 
he could inherit the property. Now, the situation would have been that only a son could inherit. So Naomi and Ruth, as it stood, without husbands and without sons, would mean that they would lose anything that had belonged to their families. Anything that had been Naomi's husband, Elimelech, would have passed to the next closest male relative and would not have stayed in their family. But now, they have a future. We can see that God cares for them and provides restoration on so many different levels. Nothing has missed his attention. He's interested in every level. But more than that, there's a bigger story here. It's not just their lives that God was working in, but within that, he was weaving in a bigger story of redemption. He was weaving it into his purpose for the nation because we know that one of the descendants one of the grandchildren of Ruth and Boaz was to be King David, the greatest king of Israel. He was weaving in a purpose for the nation. And beyond that, he was weaving in a purpose for all of us here today. That very same line was the same line that later Jesus was born into, Jesus fully God and fully man, stepped into humanity to bring us all back to God. And I believe this morning that there are two particular applications that God's laid on my heart, along with one fairly big question. The first application that I'm going to share with you this morning is how God is at work in the ordinary. God routinely uses the ordinary, everyday things of our lives, work, relationships, socializing. He uses these things to achieve his purposes. We can see it in the story of Ruth. They did their ordinary, everyday things. They worked. They lived side by side. There was a marriage. There was a baby. God was at work in all of it, bringing things together for their individual purposes. But then, little did they know, that would have an eternal consequence. There was an eternal implication to them living their everyday lives well. Ruth is given the amazing accolade of being described as better than seven sons. It doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> seven signified the perfect number. And a son was more desirable than a daughter. That is what everyone wanted. So Ruth being described as better than seven sons is saying she's better than the perfect family. She is better than the perfect family. Just going to share with you a story um, about a man that you probably haven't heard of. There he is, looking a bit like, I think maybe Father Christmas, when Christmas is over and he's a bit exhausted. <laughs> this is uh, Robert Chapman. He lived 
some 100 plus years ago. He is one of the founding members of my church in Devon, which is how I know about him. A very humble man, uh, so he's not, very, he's not very well known, which was deliberate on his part. He, he didn't want anyone to look at him. He just wanted people to look at God. But someone you may have heard of, Spurgeon, described him like this. The saintliest man I ever knew. Whoa. <laughs> he had a nickname. The nickname was the Apostle of Love. He once received a letter from abroad, which was simply addressed, Our Chapman, Apostle of Love. England, and it reached his door. I encourage you to read anything about him. This book is, will take you about 10 minutes to read, and it's ram-packed of inspiration from his life. But I'm just going to share with you a story, a story of how an ordinary act had an eternal consequence. Not everyone liked Robert Chapman, One such person, a grocer in Barnstable, became so upset at Chapman's open-air preaching that he spit on him. For a number of years, the grocer continued to attack and castigate Chapman, yet Chapman continued on in his ministry, and when the opportunity presented itself, reached out to bless the grocer. The opportunity arose when one of Chapman's wealthy relatives visited him in Barnstable, The visit was more than just a social call. The relative wanted to try to understand what Chapman was doing. When he arrived at the house by horse-drawn cab, he couldn't believe that the well-bred Chapman lived in such a modest home in an impoverished neighbourhood. Yet Chapman warmly invited him into his clean, simple home. As they talked, Chapman explained what it meant to live in dependence on the Lord and shared how the Lord always met his needs. As the relative was leaving, he asked if he could buy groceries for Chapman, who gladly agreed. But Chapman insisted that the groceries be purchased at a certain grocer's shop. Yes, the grocer who had so vehemently maligned him. Ignorant of previous interactions between the grocer and Chapman, the relative went where he had been directed. He selected and paid for a large amount of food and then told the grocer to deliver it to R.C. Chapman. The stunned grocer told the visitor that he must have come to the wrong shop. But the visitor explained that Chapman himself had sent him specifically to that shop. Soon the grocer arrived at Chapman's house, where he broke down in tears, asked for forgiveness, and that very day the grocer yielded his life to Christ. Such a simple, ordinary thing. He did his weekly shop at a particular place. And it had eternal implications. The second application that God's really been speaking to me about is around taking risks. Learning to take risks for God. Ruth, in her dedication and devotion to Naomi, took a risk and went to Bethlehem an unknown culture to her, unfamiliar, where she knew no one other than Naomi. She knew she was likely to find hostility, but she did it anyway, and it paid off. Boaz took a risk. He took a risk in his kindness to her in the first instance by letting her glean with his own servants and sit at the table and eat with them. What would people say? He took a risk 
in agreeing to marry her, a risk which another relative who actually was closer and would have had the right over Boaz to marry Ruth if he wished. This person remains unnamed because he didn't take the risk. He stood aside, but Boaz was willing to take it. And it massively paid off. Just imagine for a moment an alternative ending to Ruth, one where Ruth doesn't go with Naomi. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go home where you'll find husbands, go back to your own families. They cry and say, yeah, okay, you're right, Orpah and Naomi, and Ruth go back home. Naomi goes to Bethlehem. I'm not sure that story would have featured in our Bible. Or the ending where Boaz doesn't want to take the risk either. And he doesn't decide to marry Ruth. And we don't have this final chapter. I don't think that would have featured in our Bible either. God would have found a way to work out his purpose. But Ruth and Boaz, by taking a risk, got to play a part in God's eternal purpose for all of humanity. A few years ago, uh, when the Olympics were in London, a group of my friends went there to offer themselves as with prayer ministry to anyone who wanted it. And they would walk around the grounds and places and pray for safety and security and anyone as they felt God had led them. One day they were having a bit of a break in one of the parks and my friend Kat saw a man sitting on a bench and felt God say something rather unusual to her. She felt God say that she needed to go over to this guy and tell him that God was going to give him grease nipples in his knees. I know. Now, just in case you don't know what grease nipples are, I'm sure you do, there's a picture of some examples hopefully coming up on the screen. It's essentially a little, very simple, one-way valve, which means on machinery you can put the grease in and it doesn't come back out. So the grease stays in, keeps everything lubricated, keeps it moving freely. That is a grease nipple. What I love most about this story is that my friend Kat didn't think to herself, I bet he doesn't know what grease nipples are. I better like sort of interpret that a little bit and change it around and then go over to him. She took a massive risk. She went over to him and said it to him exactly as God had said it to her. And this guy burst out laughing. Turns out he was an engineer. He knew exactly what grease nipples are. And secondly, he then said that the previous week he'd been at the doctor's talking about his knees, which had been giving him some trouble for quite a long time. And he just happened to comment to the doctor that he needed grease nipples in his knees. And that interaction led to the opportunity for my friend to pray for him. And not only was he blessed, but so was she. A few years ago, a friend of mine uh, lost her bag in the supermarket. In fact, it was taken from her trolley when she wasn't paying full attention. She was really distressed by this, not because of any of the personal things really in the bag, but because it contained some of her lecture notes. And anyone who has studied or taken notes for yourself on a course or done any training or known, there is nothing like your own notes. Even taking someone else's, it's just not the same. And this was the thing that most upset her. That was the thing to her that was irreplaceable. She can replace her cards, she can cancel them, fine. 
but she couldn't get these lecture notes back and it was a real source of um, worry for her. And I really felt God say to me to tell her that he would find her bag and she'd be reunited with it. But I hesitated and I hesitated. I was like, but God, what if, what if I've not heard you right? What if it's wrong? And before I said anything to her, she texted to say, Jean, it's amazing, my bag's been found. And I'd missed that opportunity. I don't know if by me stepping out then when God had said something could have led to a conversation that had an eternal implication. And right now, I want to say to you, I would rather have got it wrong and been really embarrassed than missed out on that. The reality of risk is that sometimes we will get it wrong. Sometimes we'll be embarrassed. Sometimes we'll step out for God and the reaction will be one that we don't like. Sometimes there might not be any obvious fruit. We don't always get to see it. You might have heard of a man called Jim Elliott who went out to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador. He and his missionary friends were all murdered by this group before any of them had become Christians. Yet they did. Those five martyrs had laid the groundwork, which then opened a door for others to go in. They estimate that around 600 people were inspired to become missionaries because of the story of Jim Elliott and his friend. Also, quite incredibly, only two years after they'd been murdered, his very own family and children went to live among that tribe, their children playing side by side with the very people who'd murdered their father. Only in the kingdom of God. Only because he took a risk. Would you rather take a risk and be embarrassed or live with the what if? What if that could have had an eternal implication? What if that could have really blessed someone? And the question, the question that really strikes me from the story of Ruth is how are we to be Ruth-like in spite of our circumstance? We see in this story three women in a very, very similar situation responding in three very different ways. We've got Orpah, the daughter-in-law, who tearfully, not joyfully, tearfully left her mother-in-law and went home to the familiarity and comfort and security of her own home. We have Orpah who walked away. I don't blame her. <laughs> I think I probably would have done what she did as well. It seemed like a very sensible idea. We've got Naomi who became bitter. Her feelings of bitterness in her situation dictated her identity. And then we have Ruth, who in the midst of grief and uncertainty and distress, decided that she was going to devote herself to Naomi and to God quite a different reaction. And so my question, how do we remain Ruth-like, is really how do we remain 
devoted to God and devoted to loving other people, no matter what, no matter what our circumstances are. And I think we can look elsewhere in scripture to find some guidance on this. See, the book is a book, the book of the Bible is a book of books that are all meant to be read together. So we can look elsewhere in scripture and see what happens. See how this is lived out. And one of my favorite places to go for this is in the book of Psalms. The Bible never tries to cover up anything. It's a brutally honest book. It tells it as it is. And in the Psalms, you might be quite surprised to read some of the things that we find there. Psalm 73 is a psalm by a guy called Asaph, who was a worship leader. And in Psalm 73, he talks to God about the fact that the reality around him is confusing him. And he describes himself as almost losing his footing because of what he sees around him. What he sees around him, the reality around him is wicked people flourishing and good people suffering. And he doesn't get it and it's causing him to doubt and question God. But what he does with that is really important. It says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God. He took his questions straight to God and he was brutally honest with God. And that is a picture we see repeated again and again and again. God is big enough for us to be brutally honest about what we see and what we feel, the doubts and the questions we have. We should never be afraid to go to him and tell it as it is, as we see it. So he took his questions, big questions to God. And by taking them to God, he was then reminded and reassured of the truth. So he spends some time dwelling on the truth. The truth that nothing can separate him from the love of God and that he has an eternal destiny which is quite different from those who don't love God. He says, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. I love this next bit. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. How good it is to be near God. He came to God brutally honest. He was reminded of the truth and the result was praised and a renewed energy to devote himself to God and continue on the path that God had called him on. This really resonates with me. Some six years ago now, as a lot of you will know, I was widowed. My husband, Paul, was diagnosed with a terminal aggressive cancer, and six weeks later, he died. 
in the midst of that, I learnt that the only way was to be brutally honest with God. And let me tell you, it was very ugly. It was very ugly. But God isn't sat far off in a throne room watching it happen. He's right there with us in it. And in the moment of being brutally honest with God, shouting, crying, curling up in a ball on the floor, when I opened my eyes, I realised I was sat in the lap of my heavenly father. So he was very close, closer than I could have ever imagined. And the pain Paul and I were going through, he was grieving with us, not just watching it happen, but grieving with us. Knowing that our heavenly father has got our back and is with us through it all, it gave me the strength to do what I needed to do, to not operate in the circumstance or give in to the feelings, but to rest on God's strength. It was him who enabled me to go to sleep, to wake up in the morning. Everything was dependent on God, but it started in a very ugly, brutally honest place, which opened the door to God transforming my heart. The second thing that I think is key in maintaining our devotion to God and to loving other people is that we do it together. We do it in community. We were always designed to do it with each other, with our Christian brothers and sisters, not alone. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one because if one falls down, the other can help him up. There's an account in the Gospel of Mark of a paralysed man who can't get close to Jesus because there are so many other people crowded around him. So the friends of the paralysed man make the crazy decision to carry him to the roof of the house where Jesus is, cut a hole in the roof and lower him to the feet of Jesus. I love this story. Do you know what Jesus says? When the friends lower their paralyzed friend to his feet, Jesus says that he sees the faith of the friends and says, your sins are forgiven. Roll up your mat and walk. It's okay to rest in the faith of your friends. It's part of our calling. There are going to be times in our lives where our circumstances will spiritually cripple us and we can't get ourselves to the feet of Jesus. And that is when the community around us can come pick us up and carry us to the feet of Jesus. And there is no shame in that. We do it together. And finally, the third thing is that we keep our eyes on the prize. Philippians says, this is the Apostle Paul talking, I am still not all I should be, but I am focusing all my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven.
Our journey with God is like a race, but more like a marathon than a sprint because we're in it for the long haul and there are going to be ups and downs. But the key to completing that race is keeping our eyes focused on Jesus and our eternal destiny with him to a place where there will be no more suffering, sadness, sickness or death where we will see him as he really is. Before I moved to Birmingham, I worked in a primary school. And one of my most vivid memories from that time is a school sports day. Uh, There were two boys planning to run the sprint, the biggest race of the event. And it was also their last year in primary school. And they were best friends. So this was a, was a really tense moment for both of them because they knew it was their last chance to race each other and finally answer the question, who's the fastest? They were very, very evenly matched. They were very similar in a lot of ways. And year on year, they had just finished maybe one one year, the other the next, or just neck and neck. There wasn't much separating them. No one could call it. I remember watching these two boys as they raced, completely neck and neck, for nearly the entirety of that race, until just as they approached level with where I was standing, not long before the finish line, one of the boys turned to look over to see if he really was winning, and looked over to see where his friend was. And it was in that moment of taking his eyes off the finish line that I saw very clearly he slowed down and the other boy went on and clearly won. He took his eyes off the finish line, his eyes off the prize. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus and our eternal destiny which remains unchanged despite circumstance and despite how we might feel. just coming in to close now with these last thoughts. Firstly, I think God wants to leave us in a place where we don't discount the ordinary. The ordinary can have eternal implications. Secondly, I think God wants us to learn to take risks for him to not hold back and be in that place of what if, but step out and take those risks, they might have eternal implications. And finally, God is calling us to be Ruth-like in spite of our circumstances. Switch mics quickly, I hope. There we go. There are moments like this where I know Oasis, when it's quiet, it doesn't mean people are bored. Because actually, generally, if people are bored, they just chat. When it's quiet, it generally means that you feel like actually God's doing something. And I think with everything, Ruth, uh, with everything Jean has shared this morning, I was thinking, as I was sat there, I was thinking, I don't know if you've been out and you've had this really good meal. And when you've had a really good meal, you feel full, but you also kind of take a moment to just 
digest the flavours and enjoy it. You don't kind of quickly think, right, great, that's a nice meal, let's go somewhere else and get something to eat. You just think, I just want to take a moment to enjoy what I've eaten. The danger at this point in time is I just quickly say a prayer and say, there we go, we've enjoyed it, go on, let's go on, let's have some coffee and donuts. That's not the point of this. The point of what Gina's left us with is actually something that we're to nourish and take hold of, not today only, but actually I want to be encouraging us throughout this week. In order that we allow all that she shared to actually start to penetrate our hearts, in order that everything that was spoken of at the beginning, that we would have our hearts opened more and more to who God is, in order that we can be those who live like Ruth. So I am going to pray for us, but it's not a prayer of, right, okay, now we can feel like we've finished and we've got closure and we can move on. It's rather going to be a prayer of actually saying, God, continue it. There isn't going to be a kind of slick thinking, all right, we've ended. Get on. No, no, it keeps on. For some of us, we'll then talk to people as we do tea and coffee. We'll think, this is the reality of this where I'm at. Actually, I know I can't keep going on pretending it's okay. I just need to say, this is my reality. Would you stand with me? I need community. For some of us, we're going to think, I need to get home because I just need to get myself in a room and say, God, this is where I'm at. I need you to come and meet with me. We'll each be in different places. I just want to pray for us, close our eyes. Jesus, I thank you for you being here with us. I thank you we're not just some odd bunch of people that gather in a room. We're here with your body. And as such, you're uniquely involved in wanting to strengthen and enable who we are. 